This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alsa Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined as ever by Ed Reed, our Africa and LNG editor, and our digital journalist Hamish Penman. And we've had a slightly quieter Easter break, but that generally hasn't stopped the news from rolling in. Big news as we record on BP's Murlac field today, but I, I need to gather my thoughts on what I'm actually going to say about that. So, Hamish, we've had a very interesting few days for the Saipem 7000 crane vessel. Tell us uh, a bit more. Yeah, poor Saipem. They've not really had their uh, troubles to seek this <laughs> year. Um, they had a profit warning in January that sent shares plunging to, I think, Lowest levels since the 1990s, um, a good deal of fallout from that year. And it's uh, understood it sparked kind of, that was understood it was sparked from issues at the, the Nate Nagiath offshore wind farm, which is currently going up off the coast of Fife. Um, and there's been issues with the seabed there. Um, Saipen, as according to reports, has been late in delivering jackets. So that's kind of been a bit of a long running issue for them. It now looks like they could have another one to contend with. Um, the Saipem 7000 semi-submersible crane vessel has suffered, um, I think, what you can only describe as a monumental ball <laughs> Um It was carrying out a, a load test lift of a couple of barges uh, in Norway, just north of Stavanger. Um, when, and this is in Saipem words, the, uh, the main block wire snapped and the barges simply just crashed into the ocean. Um, no one was injured in this, um, but the Saipem 7000 then did tilt pretty severely and going by the pictures, it did look as if it was, yeah, very, very close indeed to uh, toppling over. Um, it was then righted, um, but it did suffer some damage during the uh, during the whole palaver, which is kind of unsurprising when you see, you see the, um, the videos of what happens. Um, and an assessment is now being carried out. And yeah, if you haven't seen the photos and videos go check them out on the energy voice site because they really are worth a worth a look they are quite remarkable um just the how the whole thing played out and it seems there were a lot of folk there watching there were a lot of um, amateur <laughs> amateur videos and amateur photos being um, peppered across the internet so it wasn't exactly a um a private fuck up <laughs> I saw, I saw, I just want to come in because I saw, I looked at the Norwegian media and there's no Norwegian media, just look at Energy Voice folks, but you know, if you were. Um, and they actually got a, 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 a wee kind of, how would you call it, like not a life craft, but like a daughter craft, you know, the small boats that you'd go out. And one of the reporters actually went out and did a piece to camera uh, with the 7000 in the background. I thought that is, that is some commitment. I enjoy that very much. Um, but yeah, there was loads of video, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah that is good. I have not actually seen that. Would like to have seen what DCT would have said if we'd hired a hired a boat from Aberdeen to dot across the North Sea to do that. Ned sent them the bill. That could have been a. Well, it's all it's all in the Energy Voice budget. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no, exactly. But I mean, the fact that it was carrying out a test in relatively well, what looked like relatively calm water under presumably quite strict observation. If this was hap- had happened when it was carrying out um it's normal kind of operational work it could have had quite different um outcomes you would have think and that everybody was probably quite aware of and it was probably yeah quite strict and and everything was done to the letter so interesting to think what what might have happened and, and thank god that it didn't mm. Um, but it does throw up questions because before the Saipem 7000 did cross the North Sea for, for these tests, it was um, carrying out transporting and installing uh, turbine jackets for the Sea Green Wind Farm, um, which is Scotland's largest. And it was due back at the end of the month for the next to, to, to kick off the next installation campaign. So yeah, I think it's fair to assume that that's now unlikely. Um, 
The campaign will have to take a rain check unless another vessel can be drafted in. And pretty quickly, there was somebody on LinkedIn saying, just give Herma a call, which uh, <laughs> did make me laugh. But um, there's still a long way to go on that project. Only 21 of Seagreen's 114 turbines have been fitted on foundation structures, according to the latest notice of operations that came out last week. Um, a spokesman for the Sea Green project, which has been developed by um, SSE Renewables and Total Energy, said, well, it's too early to say what impact there may be on the project. We are working closely with our tier one contractor, Seaway 7, to assess the situation. So, yeah, unclear yet what impact this will have. It seems difficult to think that it won't have one, but we'll wait and see that this, yeah, the kind of timeline for delivering sea, uh, sea green could well be kicked down the road a tad. Are there, I mean, obviously, as you as you say, Hamish, uh, Saipem seems to have had a real uh, problem with wind, even though I think it, it, it sort of sees sort of wind as the future, doesn't it? I mean, I think, you know, looking at how this accident happened, um, does, does Saipem have other similar vessels that may be uh, susceptible to sort of uh, the same testing, tipping over problem that, that this one has had? Whether it's um, susceptible to the same or whether this was just a, a freak occurrence and something that had slipped through the, the maintenance work, it's kind of difficult to call on that um, without, without kind of speculating too much. I did have a look at their kind of vessel list to see... Are there any alternatives that it could draft in too sweet to to replace the Saipem 7000 to keep this project going? And it doesn't seem like there really is. It's the only one listed under the ultra, ultra heavy lift and deep water pipeline category on its website anyway. So I don't know how much of the, that kind of capacity there is for, for drafting and replacements. Um, and then, yeah, I, I suppose on the point of could it happen elsewhere? It could happen elsewhere. There's nothing to suggest it will happen elsewhere, but... You would like to think that Saipem now, off the back of this, are carrying out a more wide-ranging assessment of, it, of its vessels to check that this definitely isn't going to be a, a frequent problem. Yeah, I mean, it has, it, it, not with Saipem necessarily, but it has happened uh, elsewhere in recent times. I mean, we did, uh, well, it wasn't the specific incident, but it was actually during uh, an operation on the, the Ormond offshore wind farm in the Irish Sea, I think around of October time. Um, that, that kind of three years... Turbines were, yeah, 61 meter turbine blades were dropped to the seabed. Um, and there were some rather uh, unsettling videos um, being circulated on there, despite it being, you know, off in the middle of the sea, not at a, at a port. Uh, and Vattenfall, uh, well, it was dropped by, I think, a Van Oort vessel, but Vattenfall, who's the developer, had to kind of deploy their media teams to uh, shut it down as much as they could, you know, um, or do damage control, I should say. Um, and and yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I guess when anything like this happens, it does go, uh, quote unquote, viral. Um, obviously, uh, I, I, I guess a heavy lift incident isn't quite as dangerous for an offshore wind farm as it would be for an oil and gas platform for, for obvious reasons. But, it, you know, it still is a very dangerous incident. And if, yeah, if it were to happen whilst um, off actually during construction, then there would be, you know, serious repercussions from that, presumably. Um, but yeah, I guess it's one of these things, you know, we've never really had uh, installation. I don't think we've had installation of offshore wind to the scale that we're looking at now and uh, going forward. And I just wonder to what extent are we going to see more of these kind of events take place? What can be done to mitigate it? You know, will groups like Offshore Energies UK or Step Change and Safety or whoever else can be sharing these lessons across 
the different industries uh, because you know as we know Saipem well do they need to I mean Saipem works in oil and gas and in offshore wind right uh, and has for for some time so yeah interesting to see how that plays out um, and certainly interesting to see how um, uh, the 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 SSE uh, Sea Green project pr- goes forward I think you're right Hamish if it's 21 of 114 turbines. I don't know when they're planning on getting it uh, operational, but it would seem that that is not an ideal point uh, <laughs> to have your only uh, crane vessel uh, go out of action. So, uh, yeah, interesting one, that. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I think Sea Green was meant to be fully up and running early 2023. Uh, first power is due this year. I think the, the first turbine went in in December. Um, and just kind of on that whole trailer the whole energy security point and trying to bring down bills it's bad timing for that as well because this would have it is it's a huge project like i said it'll be scotland's biggest it's going to deliver a considerable amount of green energy that i think we could all probably do with at the moment even if it was just to knock a bit off our energy bills we wouldn't wouldn't mind that so um bad timing in that regard as well so we will kind of keep an eye on this to see as and when we think we can assume the project's uh, timeline will be kicked back hopefully not by uh not by too long and yeah hopefully this also doesn't become a a regular, uh, a regular occurrence. Okay, well, thank you, Hamish. Well, we will certainly continue to follow the saga of the Saipem 7000. Next up, he's your Venus, he's your fire, at your desire. It's Ed Reed. Energy Voice presents Tracking Transition, CCUS. Carbon capture, utilisation and storage is an essential solution for the world to reach net zero, helping to eliminate emissions from industries such as energy, steel, cement and chemicals. Established infrastructure and vast offshore storage capacity gives the UK a strategic advantage. This will be key to the UK's push towards net zero by 2050, and the UK can act as a springboard for CCUS development around Europe. CCUS, the latest in our tracking transition series, kicks off on May 9th, with session one focusing on the UK and Europe. Together with our principal partner, SSE Thermal, we will analyse the UK's expanding CCUS sector and the rich export opportunities it will generate. There will also be a focus on developments in other European countries and the emerging synergies across the industry. Register free for this virtual event at trackingccus.com. So, Ed, that's not so much a segue, uh, more maybe a, a grounds for an HR email there, captured in the power of podcast for posterity. Um, but yes, tell us what's happening with uh, Venus Graf and uh, Namibia, Namibia uh, more widely. Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously this year was, was we saw those really, you know, two two big wells come in and, and you know, we're, we're sort of seeing kind of a kind of a continued trickle of news flow around those uh, Venus and Graf wells. Just, just to remind you, uh, Total Energy's uh, drilled Venus one um it took maybe a little bit longer than they had initially expected but it was uh in more than 3000 meters of water uh it's a sort of another 3000 meters into the seabed so it's a fairly uh challenging technical move uh that you know the, the they said before if successful opens up a, a range of, of of opportunities both up the the coast of, uh, of of Africa and sort of South America, and and so obviously the fact that that came in for Total uh, is 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 a really uh, really big move, um, and at about the same time, I think it was maybe a week earlier, Shell's uh, Graph well also uh, sort of next door uh, also came in with a, with some 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 pretty big numbers talked about. More than 300 million barrels, they're saying. Um, so these these two wells have really transformed, uh, you know, Namibia's outlook, I suppose. 
I mean, it's it. You know, there there have been a number of uh, exploration efforts offshore Namibia that have that have failed over the years. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars sort of tossed into the ocean, um, and and it all seems for naught until uh, success comes along, and 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 suddenly everyone's kind of reconsidering Namibia. So. Certainly, you know all those kind of companies around uh, in in Namibia's offshore are suddenly sort of rethinking um, just how prospective they may be. There's a lot of juniors in there who obviously don't have the sort of the maybe sort of hundred million dollars needed to, uh, to 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 drill a well in that sort of deep water, but obviously they've got you know hopes to uh, bring in partners. So there's a lot of um, showing off in in sort of data rooms and and, and farming opportunities. Uh, being discussed, I think the, the kind of the the, uh, the one sort of maybe sort of slight exception to that is in the north of Namibia, where obviously Namibia sharing a sort of a, a maritime border with Angola, a, a sort of a long time West African heavyweight, and and Exxon has actually taken an, a fairly big position in in Namibia's northern waters, um, you know, which is which is a, a quite an interesting indication. Obviously, with Exxon, you never quite know; they play things very casually, uh, so we'll kind of see how it works out. But obviously. That's certainly an interesting one to watch. And then onshore, we saw two wells go in last year, uh, which uh, drilled by a Canadian company called Recon Africa, mm. which you know raised the ire of a number of environmentalist uh, organisations and, and NGOs. Um, and a lot of the criticism, well, I mean, there, were, there was criticism around the sort of their environmental contact, but there was also people saying, you know, that Recon Africa hadn't found oil. And from what we can tell from what Recon's been saying, that you know they have found well oil, um, and the, uh, the there were some very positive words put forward by the Petroleum Commissioner at a, at a, at a conference this week in Windhoek. Um, so more work coming in this quarter for Recon. They're going to drill some more wells this year. Uh, in the offshore, uh, Total Energies, uh, an official from there, was, was was saying that you know appraisals going ahead. Shell obviously kind of continuing at work there, and uh, the head of Namcor, the sort of state-owned oil company, which has a stake in in both of those uh, discoveries, has sort of put forward this idea that you know maybe maybe first production could be reached in those offshore areas from 2028, mm. which. Uh, you know, would be would be a, a very positive uh, surprise for, for for Namibia, and and obviously, we're looking at some really sort of significant discoveries and and, and projects. I mean, you know, sort of presumably hundreds of thousands of barrels. I really. Uh what I did notice about those offshore projects, um, uh, and I, I'm not going to be that guy that just goes in and says, oh, I, actually, uh, I think you'll find, but I'm, I'm going to do this now. <laughs> so I noticed that one of the guys, uh, one of the, um, the gentlemen quoted um, said that this is, well, he said that it's not to underestimate the technical challenge of a 3,000 metre well. I mean, that sounds insane. Um, but I do note that... Um, I think he said it might have been one of the largest in the world. Uh, so I, I had to, I had to check that out, um, and I noticed that Equinor um, popped up, and they did a, a ten-kilometer uh, well, I think, at the Troll Field last year. Um, but I guess, and I guess, you know, at a certain point, it gets so deep that it's like, well, I mean, it's it's going to be immensely technically challenging. So you're going to need, you know, it, it, is it four kilometers, ten kilometers, whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I suppose on that on that point, the, the sort of the technical challenge. I think it's really the sort of the water depth which is the challenge. Sure. And I think, um, I mean, I obviously it's one of those things that's kind of quite hard to track. I mean, I think there there have been some quite very deep water developments in the Gulf of Mexico.
Mexico, which is sort of in that sort of area, maybe sort of slightly less. So the guy from Titanogies was saying um, that it looked like this was going to be the deepest water development in the world. Oh, wow. There might be one in Brazil. So it's a sort of a number one, number two sort of situation in terms of water depth. Um, and obviously, I mean, how you go about developing that and the, the pressures involved at those sort of, you know, water depths. I mean, it's uh, it's going to be a, a sort of a fairly big challenge. Obviously, Titanogies, if, if, anybody, if any company should be able to carry it out, Presumably, the French can do it. They've got a lot of experience in that area, a lot of experience in in Angola. They've also got the sort of the that that big project that sort of you know they've got big plans for in South Africa, the sort of Bill Pader Lipert sort of discoveries. So clearly, they've got a lot of expertise, um, you know, and 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 so clearly they should be able to do it. But obviously, to make that sort of development work, it's gonna have to be a really monster uh, find, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think you know the sort of yeah, uh, you know, and 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 from what they the the noises have been, that that seems to be sort of on the cards. But obviously, you know, we'll, we'll be watching the appraisal drilling, uh, which should be going ahead this year to 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 really kind of try and zero in on some of those details. And then, as you kind of mentioned, a lot of the companies in the well. Shell and Total, notwithstanding, a lot of the companies, and Exxon indeed, but a lot of the companies that are in place now are kind of more minnows. Um, could any more majors be tempted along? You said there's a lot of very sexy data sharing going on at the moment for farmings and that. Do we think we could get some uh, other big players in Namibia soon? Well, I mean, I think this is the big question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think they essentially, you know, looking at that sort of scale of deep water development, I mean, it would need to be a a, a company with, with, with deep pockets. I mean, in looking at the, you know, the sort of the that have come to Namibia and spent, you know, millions of dollars drilling wells on their own, finding nothing, and 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 obviously it just, you know, it's it's a company, you know, a small company can't survive that, let alone probably even get to that point in the first place. So, I think for development to go ahead in the in the, in the deep water, it would need a major, you know, to kind of come in and support it. But I mean, I think you know the the, the big question has got to be: to what extent would the majors be willing to to take those sorts of risks? I mean, you know, obviously, so so Shell, I saw, came out with their transition report this week, um, and they've been sort of talking about. Uh, you know, the sort of the frontier exploration ending sort of 2025, you know, companies like Galp uh, have said they're not going to do it, which who obviously also have a sort of experience in that sort of neck of the woods. So I think, you know, there, there are going to be questions around, around, around who might want to take that step, aren't there? And it's, it's hard to see, I mean, you know, uh, maybe maybe some American companies, maybe, you know, obviously Exxon in the north might be willing to take on a, a, a big punt. But I mean, it's a it's a it's a diminishing number of companies uh, who are able to take that sort of risk. So there is a lot of uh, there's there's clearly opportunity, and 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 obviously, you know, where there have been two discoveries, there's probably going to be more. But who's going to be willing to, to to take that sort of a punt? I mean, I think you know, obviously, as you, you teed up at the beginning of the uh, of the of the program, where we're going to look at you know BP and and some of their plans for sort of and a sort of a bolt-on development in the North Sea, but. It it seems like a world away, doesn't mm-hmm. it? That sort of you know, it's you know, Namibia is still you know outside the Orange Basin. No commercial discoveries have been found in the offshore, at least. So, given that sort of frontier risk, given the challenge, given these kind of commitments to net zero to transition, 
Who's gonna who's gonna take that punt on? I don't know. Seanock could have a bit more uh, free time on its hands soon enough if uh, reports that have been <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, selling out of the North Sea. I've, I've also saw, seen some discussions that they might leave uh, Canada. So um, you know, maybe maybe they'll have a nice pocket of cash to uh, to redeploy to Namibia. Well, we we shall see. We shall see before we get into some. Well, we're going to continue with our wild speculation. That's what this podcast is really at its heart. <laughs> uh, next up, uh, as, I'd, as I'd mentioned there, I'll be discussing a, a redevelopment project uh, to bring a, a North Sea field back to life. Energy Voice and Bracewell present NEO2, capitalising on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The energy transition will need to harness an array of new technologies with solar PV, hydrogen and storage all playing a critical role. These three industries each have their own merits and challenges, but are certain to attract substantial capital and create significant opportunities for the global supply chain. In 2021, Energy Voice presented the first in our NEO series, which focused on the US market. On Wednesday, the 18th of May, 2022, in association with Bracewell, a leading law firm renowned worldwide for its unique depth and experience in energy, we are delighted to present a follow-up virtual event focused on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The international energy industry has much to learn from the rapid development of these technologies in the region. And our heavyweight panel will explore how solar PV, hydrogen and storage are shaping the new energy mix and how to capitalize on the opportunities this transition presents. For free registration, visit neo-2022.com. Okay, so uh, yes, BP has announced plans to press ahead with the Murlac field in the UK North Sea. It is a redevelopment. Um, it's going to need new investment and new infrastructure, so you might call it a new project. Um, but uh, rather than get into that particular point of contention, we'll just move on. Um, the NGOs, uh, as things stand, as we record, have not gone back to us for comments. Uh, they may well be putting together a, a Stop Murlac campaign, but we shall see. We can maybe talk about that a little later. Um, but the facts uh, we have to hand as things stand... Um, BP has submitted an environmental statement and sought consent from the industry regulator, the North Sea Transition Authority, to proceed with this um, project. And yeah, it's a redevelopment of a field that Shell, at one stage, and I think in the early 2000s, um, was producing called Skua. It's now called Murlac. And it's going to be a two-well um, tie back to the ETAP platform. That is, for those who don't know, one of BP's uh, big um, central uh, production hubs in the North Sea has been going for about 20 years or so. Um, so the environmental statement, what have we got here? Um, 25.9 million barrels of recoverable oil, 602 million cubic, feet, cubic meters of associated gas. So not a, you know, global standards that would, um, even by BP standards, that is not a huge project for the North Sea, for uh, a new North Sea project at this late stage, um, not too shabby, uh, actually. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we probably, I probably compare that, I think, to Vorlick, um, which BP brought online, uh, was it last year? BP and Ithaca, it was a BP development, now that's an Ithaca-operated um, project. Um, but that particular project was, I think, of similar recoverable barrels, I think, um, and that had uh, a not unsubstantial amount of uh, activist protester disruption. So we shall see how things play out for uh, Murlac. But yes, consultation opening up now um, with the submission of the environmental statements. First oil expected if they get the go-ahead in 2025. Um, so BP um, and the industry, reg uh, excuse me, the industry trade body, Offshore Energies UK, um, 
have said this is, you know, this is in keeping with the recently published government's uh, energy security strategy, which, uh, as we know, did put North Sea production uh, at its heart, um, domestic production over, uh, obviously, uh, reliance on overseas supply, uh, particularly um, Russia, albeit that is a, a small portion of what we actually use here in the UK. Um and BP says developing this will kind of follow their plans for to invest two pounds in the UK in the next decade for every one pound that they earn here. Uh, and they also say, you know, uh, the North Sea um, generate the the profits they generate from that will power their plans for carbon capture and storage, for electric vehicle infrastructure, for hydrogen, for offshore wind, and Offshore Energies UK, for its part, uh, says it is you know this project uh, is vital um, for maximising. Domestic recovery, um, they cite you know domestic supply as a matter of national security, uh, and they talk about certain things as well, like the energy security strategy, um, and you know the fact. I think they said the UK had to import sixty two percent of its gas uh, last year, and that figure could reach eighty percent by twenty thirty. So that is kind of the figures that are being uh, thrown about to help justify um, a project like this. So. What's going to be interesting to see is how the NGOs react to this now, because, I mean, as I said, we've had um, Vor- uh, Vorlick, that got stopped, um, Greenpeace, um, I think in 2019 it was, literally took a boat out and tried to stop the uh, rig from going out to drill it and, and prevent it. And it's a new project, it's got BP's name attached to it. Um, and, you know, I think the majority of people listening to this will have some appreciation about domestic oil and gas resource and, and supply and, and, and the requirement for that and wouldn't necessarily argue the case for this project, um, argue a case against this project, but I, I dare say that the NGOs may well do so uh, and what and how that kind of formulates will be what's interesting to to watch. It's a different um, it's a different situation altogether to the, the financial concerns around uh, what you'd find in uh, places like Namibia. Um, but it's it's a whole different kettle of fish. But I, I still think, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, if, if you know, if if there's enough pressure from the environmental lobby, could it could it make an impact? I'm not I'm not sure. Um, but it's at least enough to ponder the question, I think. I mean, presumably, given this sort of, you know, uh you know, new discussion of energy security and higher prices, and uh, which has obviously had an impact in terms of people sort of reconsidering options, and you know, obviously sort of sicker point and Cambo and Jackdaw, as you mentioned. Presumably, the, the more projects that kind of get floated and sort of resurrected and and sort of re kind of you know visited. Um, the, the 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 more thinly stretched the NGOs will be, so there the, the, there will be a kind of a question about which ones they would have to try and target to try and stop, mm. and which ones they might just have to be like, well, uh, ideally we would prefer to go ahead, but we've got to focus on I don't know Cambo or Rosebank or you know whatever else. That feels entirely reasonable thinking um, to me. Um, <laughs> However, there's a tone in your voice, Alistair, that makes me however, suggest. Well, well, it's, it's, it was just that. Like, um, I mean, I saw a Twitter page called Stop Abigail um, the other uh, day, um, which is the, a very, very small uh, Ithaca project. Um, which you know, so there's, there's a group for that. Uh, you know, we had we obviously had Stop Campbell, um, and I think we talked about. Did we talk about? I'm not sure. The recently started up. Uh, Stop Jackdaw um, campaign, which is the the Shell project um, in the Central North Sea gas project, and we need gas. Um, if I mean, yeah, and if, if if 
you would think, you know, the, the, the higher impact ones, as you say, Ed, like a Cambo and a Rosebank, I could certainly understand why there might be more uh, consternation around projects like that, not least because um, there is a more nuanced debate around oil in the UK versus gas. I should say, obviously, there is, you know, a great deal of the, the oil that we produce in the UK is exported overseas um, into refineries, but obviously we import in the UK a lot of uh, refined oil products. So, you know, we still have the need for that. So why would we not use our own domestic supply? But nonetheless, you know, you can see why people would want to target more the, the, the higher impact ones like a Rosebank or a Cambo. This feels like a relatively small one in comparison to that. But I just think, yeah, off the back of what we've seen just these little campaigns popping up for every single new field that's mentioned. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that will be the case. It's entirely reasonable to think so, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. What, what's your thoughts on it, Hamish? Yeah, I mean, doing some very very elementary detective work when you kind of look at these campaigns as they pop up on twitter it's the uh, it's the same people uh retweeting them and and showing support for them so not that that's hard scientific evidence but you could perhaps make a pretty rational judgment that there's a good deal of crossover between each of these groups and it is perhaps mm. the same um the same players instigating each one um so we i think i think the bp tag could be a huge um a huge sway in the, the fact that I think we could well see another stop more like field uh, in the in the near future. But I think does does this bump ETAP up the top of the list for some plat, 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 yeah, some platform electrification given that this all what is it starting up in 2025, 11 years? So that gives it a good running life. They've got Neptune Energy Seagull going through that as well. It seems like it's gonna have a good deal of life left ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like BP are doing all they can to try and prolong the life of ETAP, kind of in the same, it's in quite a similar vein to to Shell and Shearwater, their production hub in, in many ways. Yeah, no, absolutely right, Hamish. I mean, uh, yeah, so Seagull, as you said, and and this, um, and yeah, for, for the main production hubs, you know that, we know that, you know, Total, uh, Shell, BP, and I think a few others are getting involved with this study on electrification. I think I spoke to um, Tatal's North Sea boss um, earlier this year, and I think he, I think he mentioned that some. Now, whether these are disclosed or not, I don't know, but I believe their study is meant to come back later this year. Um, and I don't think they specifically said where they're looking to electrify, but I think you can say with some degree of surety that the main uh, electric, the main processing hubs that they've got in the Central North Sea, i.e., um, ETAP, Shearwater for Shell, Elgin Franklin, or indeed and or indeed uh, Colain for Total would probably be the some of the main targets anyway. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, if, 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 if uh, ETAP has these, um, this production profile going into 2030 uh, or beyond, I mean, we know for a fact that, you know, the North Sea is committed to cutting their emissions by 50% by 2030. And one would assume that the only way to really reach a, a, an emissions cut that drastically would be through electrification. So, uh, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Hamish. I think uh, this will... Um, probably mean that electrification has to be on the cards for ETAP if they're going to pursue this, um, which again would tie back into the questions for the environmental um, case for it. You know, if if they can electrify production, at least partially, it should become, you know, an exemplar really in emissions reduction, not just for the UK, but hopefully for the world. So a lot I don't. Of- I don't think the environmentalists care whether <laughs> the oil platform is electrified on the Alistair. I mean, come on, seriously. Oh, uh, it's just wishful thinking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't <laughs> you can but hope. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, well, I mean, it's probably another It's probably another string to uh, BP's uh, 
bow in terms of their argument, but are they, yeah, are they, is the climate lobby going to care about platforms being electrified? That is probably a, a wider question that we could pursue in an article, I think, actually. But uh, let's uh, let's park that one there uh, for now uh, and end the, the rampant speculation that it has been this podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Ed and Hamish for joining me. Uh, I've been Elsa Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.